prove it. Well, uh, again, I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting and don't know what we've been up to this fall, we're looking in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, at this theme of the kingdom. And uh, if that interests you, please keep coming. But we're not going to look at that this morning. I thought that maybe we would have a little intermission here, mid, mid-fall series. And I want to look at a passage. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. This passage that we're about to look at has become a go-to passage for me. And when I'm talking with you, when I'm talking with other people, I try not to just throw Bible verses at people because that can become wearisome at some point. And, and, and it, it can actually be a way not to be listening. You're just sort of teaching but I have over the years more and more taken people to this passage to see what it says. And it kind of hit me that I've never preached on it. And, and I wanted to. And I wanted to put it before you. So we're going to take a break from Matthew and look at these passages. This is from 2 Corinthians. I'm going to put a little few verses before that for background's sake. But we're really going to look at chapter uh, this, this part from chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible, that's in your bulletin. Um, before I read that, I've got a got a friend who uh, I met here in Greenville, and uh, he, has, he has been divorced twice, and he became a Christian later in life. And he, uh, he, he just knows tons of men in the area, and uh, not just Greenville, but, but the, the surrounding area. And, and a lot of men that he has gotten to know and that he works with and pours time into are men who are in a separation, or they've just gotten a divorce. They're going through these things. And it's just been interesting to hear him recount about him speaking out of his experience into their lives and being able to you know, sit on the front porch or sit with them in a restaurant and say, okay, now you're, you're getting this letter from an attorney or you're sitting in, in, the, in the courtroom and here's what you're thinking and here's what you're feeling. And he knows it from the inside and as he's told me these stories over the years, I've said to him, man, I, I feel torn. Because on the one hand, I would never wish on you the pain of divorce. And, and he's been through it twice. I would never wish that on you. And while saying that, on the other hand, man, look at how God uses it. You know, on the one hand, it's awful to go through. Awful to go through. But the ability to, to now speak into people's lives and, and really not to do it as a diminished person, but as someone who's, who's full. And I bet either you, you have seen that happen in the lives of people that you know or it's happened in your own life where you think about, man, I went through this thing and it was, it was awful. And maybe it was awful because of what I saw about me. And I didn't like what I saw about me and it, it grieved me. But out of that grieving came these amazing things, and I, and I wouldn't trade for them, although I, don't, maybe I never want to go through that again. And the reason I'm, I'm giving you that is that that's the backstory to this passage. Um, now, this is a complicated history, and I don't want to try to go through it and just nickel and dime you to death, but this is why it's great that we have New Testament scholars who've really broken this apart. There is this very complicated relationship you know, like when you have a, a difficult relationship with another person and someone asks you about it and you say, it's complicated, and that just covers a whole lot of ground. I think when people ask Paul about the Corinthians, he would say, it's complicated. There were visits. There were letters. There was back and forth. There was pain. There was joy. Long, complicated history with the church in Corinth. Corinth uh, was a port city 
And when you think port city, think New York, New Orleans, San Francisco. So lots of money flowed through there. Lots of different kinds of people and cultures flowed through there. Lots of sexual license there. Corinth was synonymous with that. Dicey place for the church to start. And it started, and Paul is going to refer in this passage to a previous letter. Now, what I'm preaching from 2 Corinthians, and you know, before that in the Bible, you've got 1 Corinthians. But scholars seem to agree the letter he's referring to is one that we don't have. And I would say that we're not supposed to have. But in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, these things that he broached in 1 Corinthians, like this is not good, this is not good, he took it up a notch and wrote an incredibly confrontational letter. It was so confrontational, it upset him. And so he refers in 2 Corinthians to what was the shakeout when they got that letter? How did it affect that community? Okay, so you tracking with me? If you have ever, in your own life or someone else's thought, wow, wouldn't want to go through that again, look at the results of it, you're going to see how that happened in an, in an entire community of early Christians. Okay? Second Corinthians, we're going to start in chapter 2, and then we're going to look at a part of chapter 7. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And then chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, there's nothing like your word. And um, those in this room who have read the Bible, we can talk about how we can pick up other books and we can read for pages and pages and pages and pages. And, but with your book, we read just a few sentences and feel the need to stop the weight of it, the depth of it. 
And Father, we need your help. We always do about everything, but we, we need your help to hear your word. So please help us and speak to us and give us ears. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Two summers ago, uh, for some of you who, are, who were around, the, uh, the elders of our church taught a little mini-series for the summer. I think it was about six weeks long. And it was about marriage. And, you know, just at Downtown Prez, if you, if you haven't been around, this is a good, good opportunity to say this. We try not to do tons of age and stage stuff. You know what I mean by that? Like, you know, 30s Bible study, 40s Bible study, 50s Bible study. We try to just, for most of the life of our church, it's for the, the, the church body, with some exceptions. But, uh, but we really had not taught a lot directly about marriage. So the elders of our church taught, uh, and they used a book by a guy named Paul Tripp, and it's called What Did You Expect? Really good book about marriage. And one lesson in particular, I noticed, seemed to get a lot of attention and create a lot of feedback. And it was, it was a part of the book where Paul Tripp says that people come into marriage with dreams. And it's dreams about how is marriage going to make me feel? And how is my spouse going to respond to me? And they have these dreams. And that for marriage really to be healthy and to grow and for it to change us the way we need to be changed, some of those dreams have to die. Man, something about that phrase about some of those dreams need to die, just it, it landed in our church. I, I want to take that, that way of talking and riff on it a little bit and think in terms of there are myths that we have about ourselves that need to die. And the myth that I want you to think about is what I'm going to call the myth of good me. The myth of good me. And what that means is that I'm good, and if you've seen something in me that you think is not good, you must have misunderstood. And one way you can know that you're... Uh, that you're imbibing in this myth is that the way the, the posture that you go through life with and this I'm just telling you I'm speaking in the second person this just comes naturally to all of us this is how we show up is that if you say something to me and the net effect is that I don't feel better about myself after you say it then it's invalid that, that, that grows out of the myth of good me and you think about that. Because then you think about your... Try, try to be a little bit more detached from it. You think about your life, about things that happened, what someone said, what someone did, and it was, it was just yucky to see something about yourself or realize something about yourself, and then good things ca- came from it. And that pushes on the myth. Man, this is a passage where Paul... <laughs> I mean, he pushes his full body weight on a community's myth of good men. And it produces a lot of pain. And I I, want to make sure that you see this. When he does this, it hurts him to do it. And I'll just say as a pastor, and and this, this is not a fun thing to admit about oneself, but there have been times where I have been confrontational with someone and I would even say that I've been confrontational with people in this room. And part of it was that as a pastor, I felt like I needed to do that. And part of it was I just kind of wanted to say it. 
And that's not always good. In fact, I'd say if you really just want to say it, it's probably not good. Paul doesn't want to say these things. He even says, when I wrote you that letter that hurt you so bad about yourselves, I was crying. I'm crying when I'm writing. But I did it. Because here's the thing. There's a grieving about oneself that can help us. Uh, That's the term he uses. He doesn't speak so much of sadness. He actually uses a stronger term. Grieving. So I want to think about it this way. Two points. First off, not all grieving is alike. And not all grieving leaves you sad. Okay? Not all grieving is alike. Not all grieving leaves you sad. Now, look, let's look at the first one. Not all grieving is alike. Look in verse 10. This is maybe the most clarifying verse in the passage. Here's the distinction. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And I don't know if you noticed this, but when he talks about grief, he doesn't just speak of it as a noun. It's a verb, and it's a very strong term. Just to give you a sense of it, about how it's used other places in the New Testament, this is the term that's used when Jesus the night he instituted the Lord's Supper, this last night that he has with these men that he's lived with for three years, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, we know that story. They don't know that story. One of you is going to betray me. When it describes how they emotionally responded to that, it uses this, this verb, this term. Strong term. Turn my insides upside down. And Paul says this, There's a way for your insides to turn upside down that's worldly and there's a way that's godly. What does he say about the worldly kind? He says it can kill you. When he uses the the phrase, worldly grief produces death, what what does produce death mean? Kill. What is worldly grief? It's not just generic sadness. What is it in a worldly way to grieve about oneself? That's the kind of grief we're talking about, right? Grieving about me, grieving about oneself. What's a worldly way of doing that? And in a nutshell, it's this. It's to look at oneself to see fault, to see failure. And then having seen it, to keep looking at oneself. And maybe to say to self, well, self, how do we save face? How do we dig ourselves out of this hole so that people see that we are the good people that we are? And I don't know if you noticed this quote on the front of the bulletin. I know that the the language is old-fashioned, but I want you to see this. This is by a Scottish pastor named Ralph Erskine. His brother is the guy that Erskine College is named after. I know that's fascinating, but I'm just throwing that in for no extra charge. His brother was Ebenezer Erskine, and that is a strong name, you've got to admit, Ebenezer Erskine. Hey, this is his his, um, brother Ralph, and he says this. He's talking about there's two different postures when you see something awful about yourself that can lead you to fight it. What are the two postures? And he says, well, there's a legalistic way to do it, and there's a gospel way to do it. Listen to what he says. The believer who grace teaches to deny all ungodliness. So this is a believer in Jesus who's been touched by the grace of God. 
the believer who grace teaches to deny all ungodliness, he fights against sin because it dishonors God, it opposes Christ, it grieves the Spirit. In other words, I'm going to fight what's wrong inside of me because of how it affects my relationship and my dealings with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's been gracious to me. I'm going to fight this thing. It's relational. What's the other kind? But the legalist fights against sin because it breaks his peace. It troubles his conscience and hurts him by bringing wrath and judgment on him. In other words, here's the way God's world works. Whether you know Jesus or not, you've got this thing called a conscience. The Puritans call the conscience God's spy in your bosom. So you've got God's spy in your bosom. And God made the world in such a way that when you sin, sometimes there's consequences in the form of like the way people respond to you. Like if you lie to them and they find out, they don't like it. Or if you're rude to people, and they definitely feel it and know it, and they don't like it. So that you feel this thing, and it challenges the me myth, so what do we do? We feel bad because there are people out there that don't understand that I'm the most important human. And they don't understand how amazing I actually am. And they're not responding to me accordingly in all my amazingness. And so what do we do to fix that? And, and it's, the whole thing is an exercise of oneself looking at oneself. And Paul says, that looks like humility. You know, it looks like, wow, I'm grieving about me being bad. And you know what? That kind of grieving leads to death. Because there, there's no need for a savior. There's no need for supernatural intervention. There's no need for a Messiah. There's no need for the work of the Holy Spirit. I will dig myself out of this. By my goodness. That leads to death. But Paul says this. There's a godly grief. And, and I think this is important enough to, to mention. The, the Greek term... Godly is a phrase. The phrase is, there's a grief or a grieving according to God. In other words, there's a kind of grieving that says, this is not ultimately about my feelings. And this is not ultimately about how people are responding to me and and it hurts and I don't like it and it's unpleasant. This is ultimately about who I am before God and my dealings with God and what God sees. There's a there's a grief that is Godward. Paul says, that one leaves you without regrets. And, and before I move on, I want to say this, that I, I, you know, I, I don't know all the cultures of the world. I don't know how to rank them about how we feel about ourselves. But, you know, when, when our children are tested against other children, you know, about like the metrics of schooling and that kind of thing, we don't come close to number one anymore on math and science and all those kinds of things, but there's one that we always blow everybody away on, self-esteem. We smoke the globe on self-esteem. And, we're, and, we're, and from whom did they learn it? And I want you to think about this, that the whole of Scripture should open us up to the possibility that things that God puts in our lives that don't make us feel good can be His gifts. Like, sometimes to be a real friend, biblically to someone, 
is to help them not feel good about themselves in that moment. An enemy multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend, says Proverbs. Um, How about the Bible? When we tend to think about, hey, what does the Bible do? It teaches me. It informs. It does. It does other things. What does the Bible say about itself? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine. Okay, teaching, great. Reproof. Correction. I don't like to be corrected. I don't like to be reproved. That's what the Bible does. So that we will change and have life. I'll mention this one with fear and trembling. When you look at what we call the pastoral epistles, this is where Paul kind of talks the most about church life and pastoring. First and second Timothy and Titus, in all three of those letters, he says the same thing to pastors. You've got to rebuke. You've got to reprove. And I'm not just talking about me, and I'm not just talking about downtown Presbyterian, but I mean, are we willing to concede that when, let's say, a pastor speaks into my life and hopefully can do it with tears and hopefully does it with fear and trembling and it makes me not feel better about myself but maybe I'm cut to the heart that that could be God doing good things in my life? And that if the myth of good me is saying, well, you came away from that meeting not feeling good so it's invalid that maybe that's not true. there's a godly grief that leaves you without regret. Now, that that kind of sets us up for this next point. Not all grieving leaves you sad. Not all grieving leaves you sad. Look in verses 9 through 11 and just think about how Paul lists, all right, I wrote you this letter. And here's the language he uses from chapter 2. I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Chapter 7, verse 8. I did regret it when I heard how you responded, for I see that that letter grieved you. In other words, he knew how jarring this would be. And wouldn't you hope that if somebody really, really upset you, let's say with an email, that the first sentence was, it took me a week to finish this email, and I cried as I was typing. Wouldn't Wouldn't that affect how you receive it? He says, okay, so, so I sent it. Cried when I wrote it, tore me up. But I, and I regretted when I heard the effect it had on you. But I sent it with the hope and the prayer that it was going to do these things in you. And it did these things in you. What things? All right, look in verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And listen to this. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And that that last part is probably a reference to you finally did the hard work of church discipline about some of these things that I wrote you about earlier, which leads to what? Crushing someone? No. Calling them to repentance. 
restoring them to good relationships with Christ and with each other. But you look at these things he talks about, man, what grows out of good grief? Let's think about it this way. First, the good turn. And man, this just keeps coming up on Sundays. And I'm not trying to force it in. It just seems to come up. The good turn is what? Repenting. That when a person who is a sinner, when a human being descended from Adam who shows up just pretty taken with oneself, turns to the Lord and says, Help. Cleanse me. Change me. Help me. Don't let me stay the person I am right now. When, whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time, that is always a good thing. And Paul says, when you grieved, initially you looked at yourself and then you looked away from yourself. And you looked at the Lord. And you had good regret. He uses the term indignation. Like, you finally got if I may put it this way, you got hacked at sin. Not so much somebody else's. Yours. There's a movie. I meant to look this up before I got up here. Um, I think it came out about 15 years ago, uh, give or take. It's a movie called The Big Kahuna. And um, I I don't know that I can recommend it from the pulpit, but I'm going to quote it from the pulpit. The movie is uh, a lot like a play. It's dialogue-driven, and it mostly takes place in one room. You've got three salesmen who are at a, at a convention. I think it's in Kansas. And they're trying to establish contact with this guy that if they can land this account, this, w- this would just be the Rainmaker account, so that this man they're trying to contact, he's the big kahuna. You hardly see him in the movie. The three main characters are played by Kevin Spacey <clears throat> and Danny DeVito, they're the two older, experienced salesmen. And this young guy, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's the dad. He's the dad vampire in Twilight, if, if I may digress. <laughs> I, I've heard. I've heard that he was in Twilight. <laughs> not, not, not that I would have seen that. But, so the two older salesmen and this young guy. So th- these are like seasoned guys, you know, like 50, they're in their 50s. And this, the third guy is maybe, you know, a year out of college, brand new, and he's an evangelical Christian. So they rent this hospitality suite in the hotel, hoping that people will come and go and that, that, this, that the big kahuna will show up and they can, you know, kind of touch him, get contact with him. So late that night, all these people have been in and out of the hospitality suite and they compare notes and they realize that of the three, the only one who talked to the big kahuna was the young salesman. And so they say, what did you talk about? And the young man says, I, we talked about Jesus. He evangelized him. And so the two older guys can't believe it. And they find out that the big kahuna invited him to an after party. So they send him back out and say, just give him a card and don't talk about Jesus. And then come back. So he goes out. They stay there, have an amazing conversation. Comes back in, three in the morning, four in the morning. And he did it again. And there's an explosive confrontation. And Kevin Spacey's character is so exasperated that he leaves. And Danny DeVito turns to this young man. I'm going to read you this. And he says this. You know, we were talking before about character. 
you were asking me about character. But the question is much deeper than that. The question is, do you have any character at all? And if you want my honest opinion, Bob, you do not. For the simple reason that you don't regret anything. So then the Christian says, are you saying I won't have any character unless I do something I regret? (laughs) Close up on Danny DeVito's face and he says, no, Bob. I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. It's when you discover them, when you see the folly in something you've done, you wish you had it to do over, but you know that you can't because it's too late. So you pick that thing up and you carry it with you to remind you that life goes on, the world will spin without you, then you will attain character because honesty will reach out from inside and tattoo itself all across your face. Until that day, however, you can't expect to go beyond a certain point. Have you ever regretted what you're like? Have you ever... have Have you known somebody in your life that you thought, man, they needed me to love them. And I knew in that window of time that they needed me to love them, and I did not. And you just regret it, and you cannot go back and undo it. And you just carry that with you. Because there's two ways you can do that. You can do it and try to rally yourself that that was just a glitch, I really am a good person, or you can let that lead you to Christ. When you carry that regret with you, you empathize with other people in their regrets. Good turn, good regret, and then good desires. He says, you grieved and then you had zeal. I don't want to stay this way. I don't want our church to stay this way. I don't want us not to deal with wickedness in our midst and pretend that it's not there. I want to change. Paul uses the term longing. What a great term. Like, I want to want Jesus. I want to want worship. It grows out of that. Let let me ask you this question. Could it be that the areas of your life where you feel like you haven't experienced renewal are the very areas where you have not grieved? I mean, that can even be Christians in our worship. It just sort of comes naturally to us as consumers, to, whether it's here or somewhere else, to come into a worship service and go, ah, I didn't really do it for me. And so it's always the fault of the institution. But have you ever grieved about your own worship? Have you ever thought about, man, when someone comes into a meeting with me, let's say a work meeting, and they show up, and I can tell they're not prepared, and they haven't gotten ready, and they're kind of, they're kind of carrying themselves like, you should just kind of be glad that I even showed up, how much that irritates me, and then I will turn around and on a Sunday morning kind of get there on two wheels and congratulate myself that I got there and then sort of scratch my head about, I just don't know why worship is not more, you know, it's not, it doesn't renew me. You ever grieved about that? God, 
I do things to you that infuriate me when they're done to me. And for that to affect your insides and to push you toward Christ, because God says, man, when that happens, when, when, the, when the me, the good me myth starts dying and you go to Christ who is for the bad, renewal happens. Life happens. But let me end with this. You know, Paul goes out of his way to say, why did I write you? Why did I, why did I risk hurting you? Because I love you. Um, where did Paul's love come from? We know Paul was just a very special person. And all of you need to be special people. Let's pray. Okay, I hope you know I'm kidding. Where did Paul's love come from? Um, I'm going to be quick here. God so loved the world that He didn't send us a letter. He sent us a person. And here's what one man said about when that person ends up being treated the way we should have been treated. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. Um... I'm going to pray that God would so give us, when we need it, as we need it, good grief, that we run to Christ and we can empathize with each other and we experience renewal. And maybe we can even have the difficult conversation or write the difficult letter or email that we need to in love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we don't pray for just generic pain and we, and we don't pray for just grief for grief's sake. But as ones who have inflated views of ourselves, who want to protect the myth that we are as wonderful as we think we are, we pray that you would bring to us a grieving that's the work of your Holy Spirit and that we would not sit and stare at ourselves, that we would go to Jesus, we would run to Jesus, that we would shrink to our true size, that we would be able to say me too to other sinners, other people with regret. And you would create in us zeal and longing and the fear of you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.